Yeah, so it's going to be an interesting. Just took me a while to figure out what all the different places had and what was the best deal. Comment before we, before we proceed. They, uh, they commanded the prophets not to prophesy, and then later in this very chapter they do that to Amos. Or later in this book. Chapter That's exactly right. Seven chapter 12. 7. Mm-hmm. They're consistent. <laughs> Sometimes it's not a real blessing to be consistent. Just making practical application there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Something proof text. All right, very good. All right, chapter three. Um, we go away from this pattern of the three transgression and four, and uh, deal with more uh, just direct prophecies about Israel and their condition. So chapter 3 verses 1 to 8. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which you brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? So, he has this word about Israel that God had blessed in such a special way. What had he done? Brought out the land of Egypt. And chosen them specially. You know, and, and you think about those two things. The Exodus and his special choice of them to be his people. That made them feel very special. You know, they're, they're God's chosen people. They were Israel. And if you think about being specially chosen, being specially delivered, you might think about all of the uh, privileges that, that that would give you. And it doesn't prepare you very well for what he's going to say in 2B. You know... I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. They would have expected, therefore, I will bless you no matter what you do. Why, why does this special choosing them and them being God's special people means, therefore, I will punish you? They were his people, so they should show be holy as the Lord is holy, but since they had gone the opposite way, they were defiling his name. Yes, that's right. Discipline. I think uh, from Hebrews it talks about that a little bit. That's right. The Lord disciplines or chastises those whom he loves. That's right. Our sons, as sons. They knew what he wanted more than anybody else. That's true. What are you looking for? (laughs) All of that and more. The more God blesses us, the more he expects out of us. Privilege leads to responsibility. They are more subject to judgment precisely because God had blessed them so much. 
they had thought that their being God's chosen people would exempt them from judgment. But a passage like Luke 12, 48. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. God judges people to some extent on the basis of the opportunities that they've had, the privileges, the blessings, how much he has favored them. The more he favors them, the more he expects out of them, and rightly so. He has every right to expect a lot out of them. So, um, God would be the the punisher uh, here. You know, I will punish you uh, for all your iniquities. Um, Think about us. You know, do we think of ourselves as being God's special people? You know, we're God's church. You know, we're we're God's uh, favored ones. Would we expect that that means God is going to treat us more lightly? He's going to sort of let us off the hook, even though he's going to condemn everybody else? I think he expects more out of us. You know, it's just amazing to me that he has the therefore here. If he didn't have the therefore, I wouldn't be so shocked. But the therefore is saying, precisely because I've chosen you, that's why I'm going to punish you. Now, he's got these questions that are intriguing, uh, usually in pairs. The first one isn't. Uh, verse 3, do two men walk together unless they've made an appointment? Now, wonder what he means by that. Israel and God walking together? Yes. They can't walk together unless what? Both agree. Yeah, unless they're together. You know, relationships are not accidental. If they aren't walking God's way, they're not going to be together with God. You know, they've, they've got to actually be where God is. Um, so, if they think that just because God did all that for them, that automatically means, yes, they're okay with God. No. They've got to actually do what God says to be okay with God. And then there are two questions about lions in verse 4. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he's captured something? What does that mean? He referred to God earlier as being a lion roaring, so it's sort of like he's roaring, so that means he has his prey. Yes. Why does a lion roar in connection with the prey? Do you know? (laughs) Now that's an idea. Maybe that's true. What I've heard is different. Yes. That um, it's kind of to freeze the prey. Kind of to, to paralyze the prey uh, in fear. And so the roar means the attack is imminent. He lets out the roar or freezes the prey and pounces. That's what I've heard. I don't know if that's true or not. I know very little about animals. But, but that's what I've heard. And uh, so this is God. If he's roaring... The attack is imminent. <laughs> um, isn't it? Uh, I think it's, it's, it's important for us to see God in his various roles. When's the last time you saw God as a lion? You know, but he is. And we're well off to see him that way from time to time. Then there's two questions about snaring birds. Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there's no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? I think the idea is these people are birds 
that have been snared by their wickedness. You know, if the trap is triggered, it's because the people have sinned and they're being captured and judged by God. And then there's quest, two questions about things that happen in a city. If a trumpet's blown in a city, will the people not tremble? The calamity incurs in, the, in a city. Has not the Lord done it? And again, I think the idea is there is danger, there is punishment coming, uh, the Lord is behind it. So all of these are really trying to say, because of Israel's unfaithfulness, God is going to punish. And then he says, God doesn't do anything that he doesn't send a prophet to reveal. A lion has roared, the Lord has spoken, that's why I've got to prophesy, and that's why you guys are in big trouble. This is all saying that judgment is imminent. God will punish. He is the lion. He has roared. That's why I'm prophesying, and that's why you guys are in trouble. Comments and questions? You think it's why you mentioned that there, like two years before the earthquake, maybe that there might be some significance to the judgment with that? Maybe. I think the earthquake is a judgment figure. Whether or not the earthquake was the judgment or a sign of the impending judgment, I don't know. Hey, Gary, did you say in verse 3 that can two walk together unless they be agreed that the reason why God and the northern kingdom were not walking together because they were not agreed? Is that your interpretation of that? Yeah, they're not agreed. In other words, Israel's not walking where God is. Well, is and this is, I mean, this is really not a big point. I mean, I, I wouldn't push you away. I mean, sometime back when I studied Amos, um, I wrote some down that from pulpit commentary course, I and mean, again, it's just something from a man, but um, in some of these passages, I wrote down, Amos is vindicating his own commission in verses 3 through 8. Um, could the two, the can two walk together unless they be agreed? Could he, could he be speaking of Amos in the sense of he's preaching to the people? Because later he says, um, a lion is roared who will not fear the Lord, is, the Lord God has spoken to him, but prophesy. And so could, it, could he mean that he's walking with the Lord? He's speaking for the Lord, the, the lion is roaring. I mean, that's not that big a deal. Um, so is he talking about himself or the nation, you think? Again, not big, a big deal. Yeah, I've taken it as a nation, although I have heard that explanation. Okay. Um, I think it's the nation. The reason why they're not walking with God is because they don't agree. That's what I think, okay. but I'm not sure about that. I mean... Yeah, I guess that's what I'd say. The others are about the nation, although maybe not so much in 6, 7, and 8. and 4 and 5 it is more probably. I don't know. That's that's an interesting thought. I had kind of forgotten that that is the uh, explanation of some. Uh, so that might be worth considering. Um, I mean, again, it's not, it's, not, it's, it's right. not like a big point. I mean, either way, it's going to work. So. Right, right, I agree. But yeah, it's, it's good to bring those things up, and it's good to think about that possibility. He doesn't specifically identify the two men. So we're kind of trying to figure out who are the two men. And I suppose on that interpretation, you know, God and Amos are walking together. Amos is just speaking the message that God has given him to deliver or something like that. Right, so he would be vindicating his own commission because, I mean, he's from the south, and he's going to the north to speak, and later they're going to say, you know, get out of here, what are you doing here anyway? So... I mean, God is God has spoken. So how can He not speak for God? He, he walks with God. He's in agreement with God. So He's speaking for God because this lion's about to roar. Mm -hmm. Anyway, well, yeah, and that would. I mean, the one thing that would give you is kind of a connection back with the end of that in seven and eight, 
which would be a kind of a cool thing. So I, I think that's probably worth at least considering. I don't know if, you know, I don't know which one is right. But good thought. <coughs> well, that won't write. It's written for me all along. I need something sturdier to write on, don't I? What's that going to do with Oh, yeah, Gary. <laughs> Good grief. <laughs> what do you do with that? Oh, wow. Uh, no wonder I don't use sophisticated apparatus. Uh, it's a red eye. Yeah. All right. Man, this thing has gotten old and kind of uh, grown hair. <laughs> Thank you. All right, other thoughts or comments to verse 8? I need the simplest uh, gizmos possible. Pencil. Yeah, but pencils are too broad. Need something narrower. Yeah. No, I'm okay. I'm right. That should write. It was writing for me earlier in the day. It just kind of decided not to all of a sudden. Must be it's not walking the same way you are, Gary. You're not in agreement. Yeah, maybe Dodge. Yeah, that's true. But the males out never the females. I checked that out. All right. Nine and ten. Proclaim in the citadels of, in Ashdod and on the citadels in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountain of Samaria and see the great tumult within her and the oppressions in her midst. But they do not know how to do what is right, declares the Lord, these who hoarded up violence and devastation in their citadels. Now, he says, proclaim on the citadels in Ashdod and in Egypt. Ashdod would be a city of? Although the Septuagint has Assyria there instead of Ashdod. I don't know which one is correct, which one was the original. Doesn't make a whole lot of difference. The point is, he's asking, he's saying, go to either Philistia or Assyria and to Egypt and tell them to come to the mountains of Samaria, I've got something big to show them. And what's he going to show them? Israel. And how bad they are. Yes! This is going to be quite something even for the Egyptians and the Philistines to see. You know, these nations that epitomize evil are going to get quite a show seeing how extremely evil and wicked Israel is. I mean, violence and injustice are developed arts in these pagan nations, and yet he says, you ought to come and see this. (laughs) See these great tumults within her. See the oppressions. See how they've hoarded up violence and devastation. See how it's just become second nature to them. They don't even know how to do what's right. It kind of reminds me of 1 Corinthians 5.1 where he talked about the Corinthian attitude toward the brother who was living with his stepmom. He said, this, is, this isn't even known among the Gentiles. The pagans don't even do that bad. When God's people are worse than the evil people around them, Whoa, that's terrible. That's horrible. And he says they've hoarded up violence and devastation in their citadels. Now, what do you usually hoard? Food, weapons, water, money. 
because you yeah you want them you value them they're they're they're, they're things you treasure <laughs> well they'd stockpiled violence and devastation that's what they treasured uh, of course that will come back to haunt them you know because you stockpile those things uh, you know, when you furnish your citadels with the best that crime can buy, uh, you know, it's not going to be a good thing. And uh, he keeps, I mean, all through this, he keeps talking about their citadels. He's really striking at the root of their self-confident safety. You know, their citadels work site. You know, and they've hoarded up all this wickedness inside of there that's going to come back uh, to reap what they've sown. All right, comments and questions on 9 and 10. We're still talking about Israel. Israel or Judah? Israel. I think we've been talking about Israel from 2 6 on. Okay. Yeah. I, I think primarily we deal with Israel through this, but there are some occasional references to things that would relate to Judah as well. So I think it's not, maybe not exclusively Israel, but he will much more commonly refer to things associated with Israel, like the mountains of Samaria. <laughs> you know, which is in the wrong kingdom. All right, 11 to 15. <clears throat> Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an enemy, even one surrounding the land, will hold on your strength from you, and your citadels will be looted. Thus says the Lord, just as the shepherd snatches from a lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away, with the corner of the bed and the cover of the couch. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, the praise of the Lord God, the God of hosts. For on the day that I punish Israel's transgressions, and will also punish the altars of Bethel, the horns of the altar will be cut off, and they will fall to the ground. I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house. The houses of ivory will also perish, and the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. Alright, so therefore, what's going to happen? And you see three stages in this advance in verse 11. First of all, they do what? Yeah, they invade, and then they they uh, yeah they conquer, and then yes. So you see this fully developed enemy uh, conquest. They invade and surround the city, they pull it down, and they loot it. They are going to be destroyed by their enemies. And how much was going to be left? A small piece. <laughs> yes, just like the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear. So what's the deal with that, anyhow? That's all you got left. Yeah, why bother to get that? The strike you is kind of gross. <laughs> you want some leftovers. That's not the reason, I don't think. Why would you even try to snatch a couple of legs or a piece of an ear out of the lion's mouth? I think it's saying that no matter how you try to rescue Israel from the judgment, you're not going to get enough of those from it now that's exactly right. That is what it's saying. But I'm still curious about this uh, 
just as a shepherd snatches from a lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, would a shepherd ever do that? Or is that something that he just sort of fabricated out of his imagination? This is like he's tried to rescue him, but that's all he got. Yes, there's a reason for that. This my, this note in this Bible, I'm not sure where this guy is, but it says that the shepherd would have to have proof that the lion actually ate the sheep, and the ear or a piece of a leg would be sufficient to show the lion. Exodus 22:10. <clears throat> a man gives his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep for him, and it dies or is hurt or is driven away while no one is looking, etc. Uh, verse 12, if it's actually stolen, etc. Verse 13, if it's all torn to pieces, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn to pieces. So if he managed to grab some pieces, he could take it to the guy he was keeping the sheep for as evidence that he didn't do anything to it, that it was destroyed by a wild animal. What was that verse again? Exodus 22, 13. So what's that have to do here? Well, I think that just... Yeah, that makes an explanation of why any shepherd would ever think about grabbing pieces of a sheep out of a lion's mouth. It, it's still not the point, but it does help you get the picture better. There were times they might have almost done that, grab any piece they could out of the shepherd out of the lion's mouth. So he says, just like a shepherd would do that, so will the sons of Israel the ones in Samaria, be snatched away, and the, and all that they grab, all, the, all the, the pieces they get, would be the corner of a bed or the cover of a couch. Only a few worthless fragments. You know, uh, about only enough survives to prove the identity of the victim, that kind of an idea. Uh, it, it's saying that's how, that's how totally destroyed they're going to be. That's how devastated they're going to be. All that's going to be left after the enemy gets through with Israel is just a corner of a bed or a cover of a couch. But by the way, isn't it intriguing that that's what they recover? Because I think that tells you something about the lifestyle of the Israelites. What does it tell you? Lazy. Self-indulgent. Yes. What if, if they were to snatch a couple of fragments away from us, what would they snatch? Can you take a piece of a TV with you? Yeah. Uh, how about a remote control and a joystick? <laughs> you know? Or something that way. Wouldn't that about be what they take away from the, from Americans? Cell phone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Star, Starbucks cup. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, you can think about some of the things that would be so <laughs> By, you know, uh, American life in 2008. And it, it tells you something about the people. Well, I think this tells you something about the Israelites. We'll certainly see that in later sections. But they were just laying around, whining and dining. I mean, really, is there anything that more typifies American life today than the TV remote? Because not only does it say we spend all our time in front of the TV, but we're too lazy to get up and change channels. You know, we want to stay there in our lazy boy watching it. In our what? Lazy boy? <laughs> is, that, is that anachronistic? No, it's just that it's called a lazy boy. Yeah, okay, yes, thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> That's pretty appropriate. Oh, wow. You learn something every day. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't really think about that. 
maybe a part of a lazy boy himself would be good. So he says in verse 13, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. Now, you might think about that statement. Do you see it? Declares the Lord Jehovah, the God of hosts, right? Because when Lord Adonai and Yahweh come together, they translate it as Lord God with God in all caps. Instead of using Lord in all caps, because that would mean declares the Lord Lord, the God of hosts. Do I need do you want me to go through that? <laughs> Alright. Hey, Let me I'm, I'm, I don't have a board here, so you gotta you gotta think this. There's three words that are in question here that are used in Hebrew for God. One of them is the word YHWH, what's known as the Tetragrammaton, four letters. And it's translated Yahweh or Jehovah. Except in our translations, because the Jews thought it was too holy to pronounce that word and because the translators are catering to the Jews, I'd say, they use Lord in all capital letters. If you ever see Lord in all capital letters in the Old Testament, that's cluing you in. That's from those four letters. That's the Yahweh or Jehovah. Okay? So that's that's that word. There's another word, God, Elohim. Elohim just means God, deity. And it's usually translated God. Then there's a word, Adonai. That word means Lord, ruler, master. And that word's usually just translated Lord in small letters. You know, like you would Lord. So, you know that if it says Lord in small letters, that's Adonai. It means Master, Ruler, Lord. If it's God in small letters, that means Elo- that's Elohim, means Deity. And if it's Lord in caps, that's from Yahweh, the word Jehovah. That means the I Am, the self-existent one. The only thing they change is when it's Adonai, Yahweh together. Because that would be Lord in small letters, Lord in large letters, the way they usually do it, and act like they're stuttering. So then they will switch it to God in caps for the Yahweh. So this is really Adonai Yahweh Elohim of hosts. It, uh, the point I'm making, you don't have to remember any of that, you don't have to understand any of that. The thing I'm saying about that is, this is using every title of God. It's really making a strong, stern statement. If I say this is from, you know, uh, George W. Bush, President, you know, Chief Executive of the United States, that would be, you know, more impressive than saying this is from old GW or something that way. You know, so this is from the Lord Jehovah, the God of hosts, On that day that I punish Israel's transgressions, I will also punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and they will fall to the ground. Now the altar of Bethel, we remember what? Yes. And the true God was going to deal with this golden calf worship. And what was he going to cause to happen? The horns horns of the altar were going to fall off. Didn't know altars had horns. If it was a calf. Do regular altars also have horns? I know it's, um, it's 
Tocqueville they went no ran and grabbed the horns to the altar of the Lord. Yeah, so evidently all altars did have horns. Are these animal horns or musical instrument horns? Animal horns. Protrusions coming above the altar, like as if they were horns on the altar. And those horns were used for what? Why did people grab onto the horns of the altar? They thought they were safe Yes. It would be like a means of, of, of pleading for asylum. You're grabbed onto the horns of the altar and be cruel to kill you there. It's kind of like a you know, a, a place of uh, immunity to prosecution, to, to kill it. Um, who do you remember that hung on to the horns of, of the altar to try to protect them from punishment? Eat been in close. What's you trying to think of? Adonijah. David's son that tried to usurp the throne from Solomon. And also, that's 1 Kings 1.50. You remember who else tried to grab hold of the horns of the altar? It didn't work in his case. Joab, yeah. In 1 Kings 2, but Solomon said, I'll just grab him away from that and kill him. You know, so, but it was supposed to be the security, the asylum, the sanctuary. What happens if the horns fall off? They're cut off. There's no sanctuary. There's no refuge. There's no security in the altar. The altar doesn't have any saving power anymore. And look at verse 15. I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house. The houses of ivory will also perish and the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. What does that tell you about these people? Got a lot of houses. They're well housed. What does that tell you about them? Very well off. Yes. You see somebody who's got a winter house and a summer house and an ivory house and a great house, I'd say they're pretty rich. I mean, after all, an ivory house? Now my my, my uh, margin says that is ivory inlay. Surely that'd be the case. Surely they don't build the whole house out of ivory. A lot of elephants. No. Yeah, it's a lot of elephants. I mean, you know, whoa. I would think ivory would have been an expensive material even in the days when elephants weren't an endangered species. You know, who wants to go out and, you know, harvest the tusks? Uh, so, these are rich people. They're self-indulgent. They're spoiled brats. And God's going to bring their houses down. Where's that verse uh, where he's scabbing onto the horns? First Kings one fifty and First Kings two twenty eight. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, comments and questions on chapter three. All right. Notice the beginning of chapter three, the beginning of chapter four, and the beginning of chapter five. These are sort of structural clues. They all start with the same uh, three words, don't they? All right. So, chapter four. Uh, this is, you know, when you see that, among other things, you see that the translators did fine in the chapter divisions right here. These are good chapter divisions, I think. Chapter four, verses one to three. <coughs> Hear this word, you 
cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring that we may drink. The Lord God is sworn by His holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you, and they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. All right, he talks about the cows of Bashan. Where was Bashan? Here we go with the directions again. Do right and left. No, not really. Not too up. I'm guessing all right. Yes, it's on the right-hand side of the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and what was it known for in connection with cattle? Yes, rich pasture. This was the Great Plains of that area, where there was great grazing ground for cattle. If cattle have great grazing ground, what does that do for the cattle? Make some fat. Yeah, these are nice fat cows. So why was Amos talking to fat cows? Yeah, he's not really talking to cows, he's just calling them fat cows. He's talking to the women. Yes. He's talking about them talking to their husbands. Yes. He's talking about these... I am fat on one side. <laughs> he's talking about these self-indulgent Israelite women, you cows of Bashan who have oppressed the poor and crushed the needy and who made your husbands bring now that we may drink. They were willing to exploit needy, poor people to support their indulgent lifestyle. All they cared about was their own desires and pleasures, and they were ordering their husbands to bring them another drink. How popular would it make Amos to call these women fat cows? Mm -hmm. I wanted for probably pretty popular. Do what? What did you say? Popular with the husbands, I guess. Yeah, maybe. Maybe so. Yeah, you're right. It's uh, really, uh, you know, he's really very uh, blunt with them. And look at what God's going to do. He's sworn by His holiness, the highest thing you could ever swear by. He's sworn by His holiness that the days are coming when they'll take you away. In my translation, with meat hooks, that'd be quite appropriate for these uh, corpulent women. And the last of you with fish hooks. And you'll go straight out and be cast to Harmon. And I don't know where Harmon was. But he's saying there's going to be horrible and rather gross judgment for these fat women. Comments and questions? I have a question. Um, sometimes the prophets were pretty strong in their language. Um, of course, they were inspired men. Um, how mostly what does the Lord give us sometimes in the way that we come down on things um, and just what we say and how we say it. Um, you know, I know some people, some people flinch at fiery preaching. Other people feel like um, that's the way we need to go. A lot of it is different styles, different personalities. But... Um, 
And I don't know really what I'm asking, Gary. And I've heard people disagree about how strong we can preach. Um, what do you think about some of that? That's an excellent question. I think a logical question from this. I mean, I don't know. Should we be calling women fat cows? Um, should we be rebuking the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites and calling them whitewashed sepulchers and, you know, um, other, you know, as Paul said to Elamus, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness and things like that? Or would that not be appropriate things for us to do? And how do you, how do you strike that balance? It's a good question. Maybe it would depend on what the situation called for. I think that's a, a fair statement, and that's probably the first thing I would say is the Bible writers don't always use that language. Depends on the situation. Jesus didn't always use that language. But he did sometimes. Now, when would Bible writers more commonly use the strong language? Times like these. And they should know that. Yes. S- complacent people who are proud and stubborn and arrogant. Those kind of people who don't listen to mild words, who need to be shocked. I, I think there's a place for stronger preaching. I, I can't say that I've ever done anything quite like this. Um, But I think there are times when strong language and very frank statements, look at 2 Peter 2, look at Jude. I'm not saying right now, I'm just saying, you know, those are passages, you can look at them if you want, but those are passages, look at Titus 1. I mean, there are are some things that are very strong. 2 Peter 2 and Jude, wow! I mean, Peter's talking about those false teachers. We looked at that, you know, a few weeks ago, but and most of you are here, but wow. I mean, he's really strong. So, I suspect we're too politically correct. And and while we do need to, to, to base it on the situation, I mean, it's not just a, an excuse for, you know, reaming everybody out. Some people don't need to be reamed out. But when the occasion calls for it, I think, for me, I'm not as strong and not as direct in speaking the word of God as I ought to be. Certainly can't be arrogant. It can't be us enjoying telling somebody off. It's got to be speaking soberly the words of God. But I think too often what I'm tempted to do is just not really speak the full words of God because I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. Really, it's because I don't want them to get mad at me. I don't know. What do you think? Would that be your answer? What do you think about that, Mike? I think you're right. I, yeah, of course, I mean, I, I would disagree with you on what you said. I mean, of course, I don't know your heart, but I've always thought you, you've said what needed to be said. I don't, I don't think you've ever backed off from anything you believe. <laughs> you're like well, wrong on so many of those things. You said you still stand your ground. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> No, but, you know, I, I think, I do think we have to be careful. I mean, here was an inspired man. Um, I do think we have to be careful that that we don't come to love the taste of blood, that we don't come to love <coughs> just reaming people out and feeling superior 
and those kinds of attitudes because, you know, that's, that's arrogance, and, and I think that's a problem with the nation itself. When you look at the northern kingdom, how arrogant they are thinking they're God's people and they can do whatever they want, and that's a temptation with a lot of us. We become, think that because I'm God's spokesman, I'm God's person, I can do what I want. And so we, it's, it's, I think it's a real balance, Gary, and I just think we'd have to be careful in this situation and what it calls for. Yeah, that, those are very good points. Those are very good uh, things to think about. Um, and maybe, you know, sometimes um, uh, what we need to do, which direction we need to go, depends on which side of the balance we're on. <laughs> you know, and I think, in spite of my reputation, that probably my tendency still is not to speak what I need to speak <laughs> in some situations. Not what I need to speak on my own authority. I probably do too much of that. But pulling the punches biblically and not really just saying directly, here's what the Bible says. And I think we definitely need to do that. But the warnings about pride and arrogance and just enjoying, you know, being able to, you know, abuse a role to, you know, beat up on people. That that certainly, we, we've got to be humble and we've got to, be very careful that we're speaking the words of God and not our own words. Other comments on these three verses? Okay, four and five. Enter Bethel and transgress, and Gilgal multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a thank offering also from which is leaven, and proclaim freewill offerings. Make them known. For so you love to do, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord God. I believe this would have been pretty shocking words. <laughs> Enter Bethel and transgress. In Gilgal multiply transgression, because they come to Bethel to do what? Worship. Worship. And Gilgal apparently was another special worship center. Two very hallowed places to honor God. And he said, come here and sin. Bring your sacrifices, not just perhaps every year, like somebody would make a yearly pilgrimage. Bring them every morning. Bring your tithes every three days, instead of perhaps every third year that the tithes were to be Broad. There's different kinds of tithes, but some of the tithes were to be brought every three years. So he's saying, just pour it on. Worship all you want. Offer a thank offering also from that which is leavened. Proclaim free will offerings. Make them just just offer it up. You know, do as much sacrificing and offering as you can, for so you love to do, sons of God. You know, sometimes worship is not for God, it's for us. They loved it. They wanted to do this. He says, just do it. And the more worship they offer, the worse they are in relation to God. Because their worship was an abomination to God. It wasn't to honor God. It was to please themselves. It wasn't from people who were righteous and holy. It was from people who were corrupt and wicked and who were just sacrificing a bunch of stuff to cover that up. So he's ironically... You know, saying, go ahead and worship it up. It's totally useless. You're just doing what you want to do. And you're not doing what God wants. We've got to be careful that we don't just think that any worship will be okay. Some worship's an abomination before God. Particularly worship when we aren't living right. 
And when we don't care about God, we just want to worship to try to cover that up. Comments and questions? I had a question. Um, so this sacrificing they were doing was for their own enjoyment, like the feast and stuff? Is that what you're saying? Something like that? Like what they would get from the offering? Yes. The sacrifice? Yes. And yeah, I think probably the security they felt... Uh, Whatever. I don't know why all this is what they wanted. That's a good question. It reminded me of what we studied in Hosea 4 about how the priest just kept telling offer these sacrifices that way they can get the, you know, just more to eat and just keep telling the sacrifice. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. That's just remind me of. So I don't know if that has anything to do with it at all. But. Yeah. That was, it just seems like he's being sarcastic, you know. There's the abundance of the, the religion in the land, but there's really no true five-year devotion to God. I mean, here they are bringing all these sacrifices, which, I mean, the worship is wrong to begin with because of what they're doing. But also, I mean, he's already shown the previous verses how the rich are using the poor to, to giving the women, you know, gain all this. And so there's injustice. I mean, they're worshiping, but I mean, it's just, it's kind of aimless. And so God is just being sarcastic with all this. I'll bring all these sacrifices. Come worship me. You know, it's empty anyway. So it, it's, I mean, again, it would be, it would be words that would slap, hopefully slap them in the face to realize that this is just a joke. Yes. Yeah, good point. Very good. Other comments? Okay, 6 to 11. When I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, and yet yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. And furthermore, I withheld the rain from, from you while there was still three months until harvest. Then I would send rain on one city, and on another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on, and the part not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would stag stagger to another city to drink water, but would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I smote you with scorching wind and mildew, and the caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and, your, and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses. And I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were a firebrand snatched from a blaze, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Okay. So I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities. I, did you know God was concerned with dental hygiene? <laughs> What is what, Why would God give them clean teeth? Indeed. Yeah, that's the point. That was not exactly a blessing. Uh, they don't have anything to, to get them dirty with. And so he's talking about the punishments, the chastisements that God was sending. And they get more and more severe through this. In verse 6, the punishment is what? Famine in verse 7 and 8, it's what? Drought in verse 9, it's what? Yeah, disease and insects devouring the, uh, the, the vegetation. I guess any of the vegetation that somebody took special care of and managed to survive the drought. Um, but but verses 6 through 9 are attacks on the food supply. 
you know, in one sense or another. But in verse 10, it gets even worse. What does he send him there? A plague and then... The sword. The sword, yeah. So this is directly against the individuals. And in verse 11, it's just the overthrow. Now in each of these, when he gives them a various... various uh, plagues and punishments. Each time he ends with the same chorus. What's that? Yet you have not returned. So why did God send those judgments? That was the warning. Exactly. These, it's like spanking. They're without excuse. That's right. God was sending them warning judgments to try to get them to repent. To try to wake them up. Try to bring them back to him. And every time, they didn't get the message. They didn't come back. God's been very persistent about this. Look at all that he's done. And yet, the Israelites have failed to profit by this. They still haven't returned. Comments and questions through 11. It's a relatively easy section to understand all goes together to make one point. <coughs> so since they haven't returned, I should get that. Hello. This is a C. This is Alfred. Regarding my investments. Sure. <laughs> She doesn't know much about me. Um, so, so God, uh, when, when they haven't returned, after God's done all this, what's left? You, you know, if, if you were God, you've done all these things to try to get them to come back. You've warned them, you've punished them, you've spanked them, you've, you know, done a lot of stuff, and still they won't return. Well, what else can you do? Well, that's 12 and 13. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts, he who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. Therefore what? Prepare to meet your God. Yes. You know, all right, you, nothing else worked. You better be ready for the confrontation. Prepare to meet me face to face. And what kind of a God is it they're going to meet? Really emphasizes the power and glory and greatness of the God they're going to battle. He makes the mountains. He makes the wind. He tells man what he's thinking. He makes the dawn dark. He, he comes down and treads on the high places of the earth. Jehovah God of hosts is his name. You know, this is, this is no ordinary God. And, and now, get ready to meet him. There might be a contrast with verses 4 and 5 and their false meetings with God now they're truly going to have to meet him. And, uh, whoa. 
Jew. He's man, Can you imagine? You think about the greatness of God. Can you imagine God, you know, calling you out of class and bringing you down to his office? You know, wow. I mean, you just can't imagine what it would be like to meet a God like this. That's what he's saying they better prepare for. <coughs> Comments and questions. You know, Gary, sometimes, you know, Paul Earnhardt had said something in one of the Ecclesiastes classes that kind of struck me. He said, you know, he said we need to be careful in speaking for God when this catastrophe happens or that catastrophe happens. And, you know, it made me think about some things. But, you know, God says, I sent all these things on you to wake you up because I love you. And... You know, I don't always know everything that's happening in America, but when you look at, it seems like we have so much, so many things going on, so many catastrophes, the economy struggling, and again, I don't know everything. You know, I just wonder sometimes, and you know, people say certain things, you know. You know, I wonder what the Lord is trying to tell us, and I wonder how much it will take before we listen. And it just... You know, I just, I just wonder, and what will God have to do to us till we wake up, and will we be like people of, of uh, Josiah's day that you know just go through the outward reforms to just kind of um, go through the motions? I don't know. Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, and and you know, I think it'd take a lot <laughs> because you think about the things that we have suffered. How much has that affected people? I mean, even 9-11, it affected people for a very short time. But I don't think it really sobered the nation up. I don't see that we've gotten better. That's only been seven years ago. Not even that. I mean, I don't know. I, I think, I, I can certainly, I don't know what God's going to do when, but I can certainly see us as a nation not listening. I can see that. And that's right. And maybe it'd be the, a blessing if God would bring us down. Well, this was a great stopping point. And uh, their specials were on two topping pizzas. I didn't know what to get, so hopefully you'll like something of that.